Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all, where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going? So, um, quick reminder, I don't know if it was said in the intro or not, but now we offer the option for annual subscription so go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks if you're interested in upgrading to an annual subscription and also go to champagne sharks.com the website has every link you need related to the show and without further ado i'd like to uh have our guest uh the reef jameson introduce himself if you could just tell the people dr jameson where to find you and and what you're about hey family you want dr jameson and i teach at the university of alabama at birmingham and i teach in the african studies program and so my bachelor's and my master's were both in psychology. My master's was in community psychology with a focus or emphasis on African-centered psychology at Florida A&M University. And that was actually like the only school that actually focused on psychology from that type of African-centered perspective. After that, I went to Temple and that's where I combined my interest in African-American studies with Black psychology. So that's the type of work I do, the intellectual history of Black psychology, the uh, psychology of race and racism. And I think one of the things about me, like why I got into this area is that at first I wanted to go into communications, kind of like do what you do, right? <laughs> I, I wanted to do that, but I didn't see how that, how I could get to that based on the schools and the things I was looking at. So one day I was in the library and I looked at, I found Karinga's Introduction to Black Studies. And when I found that Black psychology section, that's why I was like, oh, this idea of how we think and what influences our thinking and how that impacts behavior. And that whole section of Black psychology just blew my mind. And that's when I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm what I'm going to focus on. So yeah, that's that. That's what I do. And I teach Black psychology, psychology of hip hop, introduction to African studies, African diasporic traditions. So yeah, that 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 that's me. You know, I didn't know about uh, Dr. Jameson. I didn't know about the psychology of hip hop topic. Would you mind giving a quick uh, summary of the kind of scope of that class and what you guys uh, cover? Mm-hmm. Well, my interest first started. Well, part of part of the reason why you might not have known is that I haven't published anything on that since uh, what was that? Oh, sit. Actually, my first publication was my thesis. But in that, I looked at the relationship between rap music preference, cultural identity, and masculinity. So I was looking, I was using uh, Amos Wilson's thesis about reactionary masculinity, and then looking at different ideas of African self-consciousness and cultural identity, and how that tied into the type of music that people listen to. So that was what the publication was about. But in the class, what we do is that I use psychology, hip-hop, but really, (laughs) this is what I tell students, we we, we use hip-hop as a lens for analyzing the lived experiences of black people. So it's psychology, but it's, it's in a broad sense. So we so we look at we look at race, we look at uh we what does the culture say about race? What does it say about gender? What does it say about class? Uh, we talk about critical consciousness. We talk about is there is there still a such thing as like political or conscious rap rap music? Uh, we look at uh we look at religion. So looking really it's like a social science class where we look at these different social science variables through the lens of hip hop culture. And we have have these well actually this is something that uh one, one of my friends brian sims he teaches at florida AM. and even uh jared ball so brian and jared have this notion of the uh these fight clubs and so fight clubs are interesting trevor in that we 
what you have is that it's not it's a debate, but it's a loose, like organic type of debate. So students go to the board, they put their main points and they just discuss these controversial issues in hip hop. Is, is hip hop dead? Uh, the use of the N word, the white presence in hip hop. So just looking at these different type of uh, topics through the lens of hip hop culture. That sounds very, it sounds very interesting. I'd actually love to uh, talk about that more in the future. Uh, you know, I, I want to stay focused on a topic that we're supposed to talk yes, about, indeed. but you <laughs> yes, really peaked, you really piqued my interest in uh, that one because uh, we talk about hip hop a lot. We're big fans of um, hip hop and the evolution of it. And that's something I think I would especially want my co-host to be there for that one because they'd have a lot of opinions uh, as well. But right. do you plan to publish on that topic again anytime soon? I do, but I'm still trying to work out. I'm trying to do more like qualitative studies and looking at uh, whether or not there is like a lot of people talk about this generation gap, right? And whether that's actually a generation gap or is it just these different ways that let's say corporate media, mainstream hip hop has like taken over the airways till we forget that there are these other things going on out there as well. So I'm still trying to work work through that, but I got caught up in, you know, the black psychology so much that I didn't, I, I wasn't able to merge those together other than how I do it in the class. Yeah, I will say one thing I think about hip hop, I forgot who it was that was saying it. There was some producer, I forget if it was maybe Mad Lib, but somebody was saying that hip hop mm -hmm. is in is in trouble because there's not really a, you know, public public enemy anymore, you know, the way that, mm -hmm. the way there used to be. And what I was thinking when I heard that is if you look at Public Enemy's uh, discography, uh, their, mm. their top-selling album uh, sold 1.3 million, but on the U.S. charts, like Fear of a Black Planet topped at 10, and Nation of Millions to hold us back reached 42 as its peak mm. uh, U.S. chart position. So it took, like, what, almost over 30 years? I'm trying to do the math now. Uh, over Like, over 30 years for it to right. reach 1.3 million, and, um, mm. you know, 28 years for Fear of a Black Planet to reach um, 1.3 million and I'm I'm convinced I haven't checked yet but I bet if you look at the level of at the whatever rap is out now that's selling mm -hmm. at that at that level oh, man. Um, yeah. yeah I bet you it's probably just as substantive as I think the problem is now there's no way to discover the type of rap music that's barely gonna sell gold you know you know what I mean like yeah 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 but I think that's the interesting thing and that's what happens in class when we do like the intergenerational and just listen to the listening to the students is that they'll come back at us and be like nah doc there are all these other ways that we access the music. So y'all are so focused on the radio. Y'all are so focused on sales. But we got we have Spotify. We have all these other means through which they disseminate the information and that they tap into it. And they're saying that's a whole other world that's out there. So like the underground is not really underground because it's everywhere. It's all it's you know it's on the web. It's, so that's that that's how kind of how they kick it and then they bring in you know these these different folks. So yeah, but that that is interesting. That I, yeah, that's that that is that's a good point there. Yeah, yeah, because because the stuff that was always selling at the, at the say the so called Drake level, like whether it's Vanilla mm. Ice or MC Hammer, that stuff was always commercial. Like you know, I just think it was just <laughs> right. the nature of the beast. But again, I love that topic, so I don't want to get down a rabbit hole. We'll table that for. But no, that's uh, fine. That's fine. That's fine. Because yeah. we we just see where these interests, different interests, lay. That's yeah. cool. But so uh, I guess. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. What I could do, I could, uh, based on my story of how I uh, actually got into black psychology, then I can talk about, uh, I'll start off talking about Karinga and those different schools of thought. And, and Trump, again, like, I mean, when I say that that chapter of looking at black psychology, I just love seeing those two words together, like black and psychology. So there's this edited book by, uh, what this different edition, first one was 72, then 80, then 91, then 06, but four editions of this big edited book called Black Psychology. 
So the third edition, I used to, when I was an undergrad, I used to like just walk around with that thing, this big yellow book, right? Because <laughs> I was just amazed at being a psych major and saying, well, how does that apply to me and my people? So what, what, what Karinga argues, and he's not the only one, he just gives us a framework for it, but he says that there are these different schools of thought. So one, there's the traditional school of thought. And what the traditional school does is that they're more like, you think about people like uh, Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Clark and Mamie Clark and uh, Alvin Poussaint. You know, he's a psychiatrist. But these people were people who, they said nothing was wrong with the field of psychology, with the discipline. All you had to do was take out the racism. So take out the racism. And after that, you can apply all those theories of psychology to anybody. So that these theories and concepts are universal. It's just that people are applying them in a racist manner. So that's the traditional school. Then comes the reform school. And the reform school says, nah, you, you have to tweak those things a little bit. You can't just apply those theories wholesale to black people. You, you might have to tweak them a little bit to make them more cultural, uh, culturally specific. So those are the, the traditional in, in the reform. But then comes comes along this radical school. At least that's what Karina called this radical school of thought. And the radical school said they questioned the extent to which those theories can be applied to black people. And they say that when you when you take the reform too far, you might end up with just white psychology and black face. <laughs> As if black people are like black people who are painted white. Mm-hmm. And so they take that and they say, no, black people have to come up, black psychologists have to come up with their own theories, with their own concepts. So that's where these differences. And one of the main issues with the radical school, most of them focus on this idea of like an African worldview piece. So they're going to ground their theories in seeing black people as people back in descent, uh, different diasporic manifestations of African culture, you know, within those particular locales. But two of the people who we we probably will talk about one tonight and probably later on on another time when we talk, talk again, but Bobby Wright and Francis Crest Wilson, they're in the radical school, but they're radical in the sense of like how they approach and deconstruct or apply these white theories, but they don't necessarily all the time use a, an African cultural perspective. So we'll, we'll get into that later on when we deal with Bobby Wright, but Bobby Wright and Francis Crest Wilson, what they do is that they say, we're going to flip the script. Since white folks came up with these theories, then they must be talking about themselves, right? Mm. So I'm going to flip these theories back and put it back on them to understand and interpret who they are. And so that's one of the things that, uh, that Bobby Wright talked about. He talked about retreating from analysis of the victim. So that reform, that traditional school, like, well, yeah, a good example of that would be <laughs> Alvin Poussaint had this book. He said, why do blacks kill blacks? So remember, that's the that's the that's the traditional school. Why, why do blacks kill blacks? And then here comes Bobby Wright. And Bobby Wright said, again, you're focusing on the people who have been victimized, the folks who have been oppressed. He says, nah, not a why, why do why do blacks kill blacks? He said, let's flip it. Black folks kill black folks because they've never been taught to kill white folks. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting in that it's like, of course, it's provocative and everybody's like, ooh, Bobby, Bobby Wright is so. But what he's saying is that there's a socialization process. There's a way we've been taught, as uh, Amos Wilson, another black psychologist, says, to internalize this self-hatred, to internalize this anti-blackness. And to the extent that you internalize that anti-blackness, he says that black folks kill themselves because they see an extension of that which they've been taught to hate, that which they've taught to to despise. And then also when you add on the conditions, right, that... Uh, how 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 that type of violence or black people killing black people, how that works as how that's ne- a necessity for white supremacy to survive and sustain itself. So then maybe that that's just an example of Bobby Wright different from the traditional and the reform school in that he's flipping away to flip the script on those traditional narratives. 
I can say in my personal uh, experience, my personal development, I've read a lot of uh, psychology, a lot of uh, conventional, uh, mm. for lack of a better word, um, white psychology, and I've uh-huh. read a lot of uh, black black history and uh, black sociology or whatever. But I started kind of naturally in my time, like fusing a lot of the um, you know theories, things I was reading about personality disorder, and I was mm-hmm. thinking, oh, mm-hmm. this stuff can really apply to uh, white people. And you can almost say that uh, that whiteness is a type of, uh, or white supremacy specifically, but whiteness in general is a kind of racial narcissism or racial sociopathy mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And I thought mm-hmm. I was saying and doing something. And then somebody uh, one day told me, you know, when I was uh, talking about this stuff, he goes, you know, that's all been kind of worked out by a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, oh, really? And that was when I, uh, they put me onto Fanon and, and um, Bobby Wright. And I read the psychopathic racial personality. And then I right, I right. got into, I got into Francis Crest Welsing. But um, I started realizing all these things that I thought that I was just kind of putting together. There's a whole tradition of this stuff already having been worked out. There's been a dialectic about it, of people going back and forth about all this stuff. And so I started reading Fanon. I started reading... Um, I started reading different things, and then um, someone put me on to to you. Somebody wrote me and said, you know, there's somebody who's done a whole outlining of the whole tradition of Black psychology. So I've been digging into you on into you since. So I'm just saying this to say a lot of this is um, new to me, even if a lot of readers uh, hear me talk about psychology a lot and mm-hmm. and race and psychology a lot. These thinkers, many of them are still novel and and new to me because I'm I'm new to this actual discipline of people working out the mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Uh, fusion of the two fields. Mm. But but you're not. I'm so glad you brought that up, and I'm so glad we're, we're talking because that's that you're not alone. That that's part of. So you we tapped into earlier why I do what I do, but also part of why I do what I do is that I felt that there was this invisibility of black psychologists and the contributions that they had made. Like they had been left out of the mix from, let's say, even within African-American studies, kind of marginalized and left off as like these fringe type of thinkers. Right. But then all of a sudden you come to find out that, no, that there's a long tradition of people talking about these things. And then sometimes they kick it back to you as if there's some as if it's something new. And so I, I love how you brought in the Fanon piece, right? And so Fanon being central as one of those antecedents to Black psychology. Would, it, would at least a Black psychology that's about the psychology of, of liberation, like studying oppression, but also trying to be about the psychology of liberation. But when you were talking about uh, even, even the, the whole construct of whiteness, and it just amazed me that this area of critical white studies, all these people talking about whiteness studies, but yet here are these black psychologists, particularly Bobby Wright, Francis Cress Wilson, again, psychologist, but who had already been looking at that, but they got marginalized as just being these crazy, cra- crazy thinkers who are, who are on the fringe of things. So I like how you recognize that there's a tradition already, but also that, nah, this critical, so yeah, they, people have been talking about these things. And the reason I tied them into critical white studies is that in one of the pieces I did on Frances Press Wilson, I talked about how she was almost, well, not almost, she was an antecedent to critical white studies. And as an antecedent, that means that she's studying racism. She's studying whiteness. She's saying that they're all tied in together. And then now you have this field of study mainly dominated by white men where they're critiquing themselves and critiquing whiteness. But her, Frances Press Wilson, nearly full of Bobby Wright, they had already checked those things. 
Yeah, and also uh, I think the problem with a lot of what we would call white psychology, I suppose, is that it talks about neuroses and psychoses, but still takes general white society as default and normative and judges um, mental illness by by departure from um, normal default whiteness. But yeah. a lot of this other stuff kind of questions um, uh, something that I'm currently reading that I think um, I think falls into a lot of these similar theories is uh, Urugu. This idea mm-hmm. that, uh, but Bobby Wright, you know, talks about this. Uh, e. Franklin Frazier has a piece that's not very well known. It came before. Um, it came before what do you call it? Uh, black bourgeoisie. Black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where he was basically studying. Um, the uh, psychosis of, of white white supremacy. And it hit so close to home that he got ran out the South and had to uh, change his pen name. So, like, like he... Is, is, was, this, was this an article? Yeah, it was an article. It's really not well-known. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very, very not well-known. I, I can send it to you. I found it by digging and, and digging. It was... Um, there's only, I only found one copy of it. On online, mm-hmm. online, but he takes a Freudian. He does similar to like what what Bobby Wright mm-hmm. and Francis Cress Wilson did, does, where he takes Freudian theory and then turns it back on whiteness as a whole and talks about yes, yeah, it's it's um it's fixation on and the projections and all the things that it does with um with white people. It's 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 really interesting how this thing was very very like so he used to go by the name Edward F. Fraser. And because he got run out the South for doing the similar work that um, these thinkers were talking about, you know, we're psychoanalyzing um, white society and, and white supremacy and talking about like sexual fixations with uh, black <laughs> right, people right. and all these repressions and projections and all that stuff. They read, mm. it was called the pathology. Um, this is from, this is from Wikipedia. In 1927, Frazier published his article titled the pathology of race prejudice in, in for, in forum. It's mm. 1927 using Freudian terms. He wrote that prejudice was quote unquote, abnormal behavior characteristic of quote unquote, quote, insanity, including dissociation, delusional thinking, rationalization, projection, and paranoia. And white people in the South, he argued, were literally driven mad by the quote-unquote Negro complex to the point that men and women who are otherwise kind and law-abiding will indulge in the most revolting forms of cruelty towards uh, black people. It ran in Atlanta. An Atlanta paper ran an editorial against him and criticized his article. And he was basically run out of Atlanta by white people threatening to... uh, um, lynch him and that's when he changed his uh, professional name to e franklin fraser from Ed- mm. edward f fraser and he never wrote analyzing white people again after that it was i was just- about to say I, w- I would think that he totally changed because i mean if you look at his work after that mm-hmm. you don't get you don't get that at all Ex- no. exactly and he says mm-hmm. because he kind of got scared off from it yeah but, but it shows the so power black- of black psychology right yeah you're right yes indeed and, and you hit on a, another good point too at first of all that, that's a great find there yeah please send that to me that's a, that's a jewel right yeah, yeah. I'll email it to you after this. Okay. All right. Thank you. But you also hit on this other point too, which we kind of hit on, but like white people and white theories in establishing themselves as the norm. 
And I think when you brought up Marimba Anis Yorugu, when she talks about the, uh, the the cultural syntax of of of, uh, of imperialism, right, of, and setting yourself up as like universalism as a form of this imperialism. So you, what, what does Bobby Wright say? He says that he almost does this game called substitution. Right. So instead of just thinking you're talking about culture and these general things, he said, no, substitute it for white. Whenever you deal with these theories, substitute white right there and then it'll start making more sense. Right. Mm. But they, 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 they kind of present themselves as this universal norm. And then what happens to all other people is that different becomes deficient. So you can't be different from that norm. And if you are, it's not just different on its own cultural basis. It becomes deficient. And, you know, I want to give you a chance to go back toward the whole, like, I want to give you the floor and let you discuss the general evolution and key points and okay. key and key mm-hmm. schools in uh, black psychology rather than just ask you question by question. I figure when we get to more specific topics like, like, right, or if there's something that I don't understand, I'll, I'll jump in and ask for clarification. Okay. Okay. So I guess what I'll do, we'll talk about, so there are... If we deal with like, yeah, we'll deal with intellectual antecedents, I guess. And then I can talk about these different locations that people go to as far as like the origin of black psychology. And it all just it all ties in as far as like the, the, ev- the evolution of it. All right. So what what some of the folks, what I try to do in some of my art, what looked at when I looked at the intellectual history. So what role does uh, Du Bois's double consciousness? Right. Even though we can like flip that different ways and looking at it from different angles. But from a psychological aspect of how he looked at this double consciousness, this way of always looking at oneself through the eyes of, of others, right? This idea of these two warring souls, these two warring ideals. So when you look at that double consciousness, Black psychology is trying to deal with that idea. What, what does it mean to be African in America? Like, so, and, and, and if you go through the different schools of thought, they're going to differ based on whether or not that conflict can be resolved. Right. So whether you can be African in America. Right. And Du Bois claims that we at least wants to merge those two together without without uh, without black folks losing themselves. Like we don't want to turn ourselves into white because then we would lose all our cultural aspects of what we contribute to the world. Where there are other folks who are saying, nah, doc, you can't merge those together. That 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 worldview is that such a cultural clash between those two that you can't merge those together. So as an antecedent to some of the issues black psychology deals with, at least the concept of double consciousness plays heavily in that. Um, a quick a quick point because this is something that I've done a little reading on double consciousness. Right, I mm-hmm. want to know mm-hmm. one thing I find that a lot of uh, mainstream writers on race do is they kind of reduce yeah. double consciousness yeah. to just code switching, which I think is a very glib oversimplification of yeah you're right yeah if you can explain um to a certain yeah, degree what so, the double consciousness is uh-huh so i had that whole i had that uh, issue the other day i was talking i was talking to these students for one of these black history month pro- you know how it is black history month you know yeah. everybody wants you <laughs> all right so i was trying to just do a brief overview of some type of double consciousness and one of the students she was like yeah is that like code switching and I mean, I'm like you, you can you can tie that in, but it's not necessarily the code switching itself. It's become a very popular if you search double consciousness yeah. code switching. Oh man. It's just and all over the place. I don't know how they got tied together like that, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like we have a preponderance of what I call uh, meme meme writing, where people just mm-hmm. kind of just duplicate, you know, the talk the same talking points and and, so, like, and, and double consciousness like this easy trope to throw out there. Yeah, sound like you're saying something, work it different ways, but yeah, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, right. yeah. I feel a lot of people are reading other people's writings on double consciousness instead of uh, uh, reading the theory themselves. So because a big game of telephone, and I think that's kind of ha- yeah, you're right. Happening. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So all right, after he goes through the Egyptian, the Indian, all that piece, right? Then he says, um, so yeah, after the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and the Mongolian, the Negroes are sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with the second sight in this American world. A world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. So on that one, I think that's interesting in that I think um, when I was thinking about uh, like some of Lewis Gordon's work and uh, we talk about like black sociology, black philosophy. And he talks with this idea of seeing like how you see yourself in the world. Then there's being seen this idea of how others see you. And then there's conscious of being seen which means you're aware of how others see you. So these perception, these stereotypes, whatever these worldviews, and he says it operates on those levels, right? So here, I think Du Bois is hitting on some of that when he's saying that sometimes once we internalize these different perceptions of who we are or who Black people are, you begin to see yourself through that lens, through their revelation, through through them as the norm, right? <laughs> like you talked about earlier. Yeah. And then by default, you end up being this deficient, you know, abnormal uh, type, type of cultural being. But then he has this other part. It is peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others. So that's the being aware, seeing yourself through the eyes of how others see you. And measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. Then he goes on, one ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals, and one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. So with that one, that that's us trying to do, black folks trying to deal with like, I don't know, the psychological conflicts of trying to be who you are, right? Like when the African psychologist says, like, to be African or not to be, right? And trying to navigate that space while these other people are putting all their own cultural definitions on on us. So tied in with Black Psych again, I guess, uh, what's that? Wayne Nobles has my favorite quote. He says, power is the ability to define reality and have others accept that definition as if it were their own. So the power is this power to define. And then once they define reality, define who you are and you accept that as your own definition, then they have that power over you. So I think this double consciousness deals more with that than with the code switching. Because like I told the student, the code switching piece is wild, Trevor, in that that's, I hate to use the word privilege, but yeah, you have to be in a particular privileged position to do this type of code switching, mm-hmm. right? So, so so, the code switching, you have to be in some type of double world, let's say where, uh, so, so let's say if I'm in an all, all black neighborhood, all black environment, low SES, uh, I haven't had access to education, I don't even have access to the opportunity where they would impose their definition on me where I have to try to mask and, and be something else. I, there's a, I don't have to code switch because there's no double reality. I live in this reality. Yep. <laughs> you dig what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Where the code switching is more like this survival tool that people who have access to those opportunities or in certain spaces recognize what seeing, being seen, consciously being seen. Once they recognize of how they're being seen, they have this survival skill set where they try to switch it and say something else. But 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 even that that the code switching is that doesn't deal with the white supremacy. Don't get don't care, right? Exactly. <laughs> how you talking? How you dress? If that if that was the case, we because we can we can do that. 
Yeah, yeah, it's like focusing so, yeah, that, on the that, symptom. That, we, you can't win with that one. Yeah, that, like, that one you can't win. <laughs> yeah, it's like focusing on the symptom that. rather than the actual um, mm. cause in the analysis. When you just reduce it to just yeah. uh, whether or not to code switch, it's it's. Uh, and, and then people use it as if almost like, yeah, I got, I can do this. See, I know how to, call, I know how to navigate those spaces. I know, man, go go ahead. <laughs> no, it's true. It's like, it's like a it's like a humble brag. Really, it's not really <laughs> right, anything right. substantive behind bringing it up at all. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, man. I agree. I yeah. agree with you. Yeah, but by all means, if you don't mind going on with, um, you know, more on the development oh, of. So, yeah. So, 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 so some of those concepts and different ways of, you know, dealing with those. Right. Then there's also uh, what's another person who. Uh, Far as the develop, and, and when I say this, these when I say anesthesia, these aren't people necessarily who call themselves psychologists uh, proper. So Du Bois, of course, not trained in psychology, but even someone like Edward Blyden, like the, uh, the the Caribbean intellectual Edward Blyden, uh, African person talks about African personality, right? So this African personality, this focus on cultural differences, and I think you see that when you look at that radical school that's saying that they want to look at those worldview differences, or think about Ani's piece Yorugu and some of Blyden's work on African personality says there are specific ways based on our historical experiences that we see the world and I guess be in the world that are different from uh, how, how, how people of European descent and how white people be in the world. Now, that one is interesting in that he's not necessarily talking about a biological argument, right? It's not, it's not necessarily biological, but these cultural experiences that form these cultural traditions and they're passed down in these particular ways. You see Black psychology or African-centered psychology later on dealing with those type of things as well. So those are some of the, I guess you could say, early like people we look at. One of the another black psychologists would be Herman G. Kennedy. He was this early black psychologist at West Virginia State College. And I think it was what was it, 1946, he came up with a class called the Psychology of the Negro class. And so this is 46. And here he is talking about, no, this should be a specific class in psychology departments at an HBCU that talks about the psychology of black people. So Kennedy as leading this way of how do you study some of these things that black, um, the psychology of, of black folk. And so, yeah, those, those early ones right there would be some of the major, what I would call like antecedents to people who weren't psychologists proper necessarily. But you see that being picked up later on in in black psychology. Yeah. All right. It, mm-hmm. it, Sorry, go on. And so then. There's this other piece where people look at, well, what's the origins of this black psychology? So I have this one piece that talks about the key concepts in black psychology. But these different schools of thought and people, they point to different origins. Like, where did it start? And of course, as long as they're black people, there's going to be the psychology of black folk. But I think that also ties into something we talked about earlier, that is it just the, that white psychology that we study? Uh, Wilhelm Wundt, right, in Germany, in his lab. Or is it is it is it Watson the start of psychology? Or does it have to be formal like that? Or can it be how black folks have tried to gather with who they are? All right. So some people argue that there's this concept called Saku, and that's S-A-K-H-U. So Saku, S-A-K-H-U. And these psychologists like Wade Nobles, Naim Akbar, some of these people, they interpret that concept from ancient Egypt or ancient Kemet, and they interpret that to mean the illumination of the spirit. So they say that Saiku later changed from Kemetic to the to the uh, to, to the Greek to be psychology. They or the psyche. They say that Saiku means the illumination of the spirit. All right. So then, Trevor becomes this point: How can that Saiku, that concept of Saiku, how can they make this leap? 
or this transition from that psyche being psychology, when the definition is the study or the illumination of the human spirit, when you know from studying white psychology, like what, what white psychology going to say about the human spirit? So, so what we know about white psychology and how, why there's psych, why there's psychology. And then here they come with this definition of no, psychology really means psyche, the de- the illumination of the human spirit. So I guess I'm kind of flipping the interview real quick. Think about like what, what we know about psychology, right? Yeah. White psychology. What, what, what issues do you think they would have with that definition? Oh, of, it's, what, it's the study of the human spirit. What, um, what issues? Like, like we're going we gonna to roll, we gonna roll up in the lab tomorrow, like go to, go to Stanford psychology department and be like, mm-hmm. yeah, y'all know the origin of psychology actually has to do with the study of the human spirit. They're going to kick us out and be like, nah. Because, because they're going to want some kind of rational, um, measurable type of uh, empirically testable um, definition, I'm assuming. Yes, sir. They, they're going to talk. Right. You, you, you hit it right on. They're going to talk about empiricism, measurable, observed behavior. I have to see it. And if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. Right. Exactly. Operationally define this thing that you're talking about. And they will argue that you can't op- you can't see spirit, even though some folks in some traditions say you can. Right. But they're going to say you can't see spirit. You can operationally define it. But what these psychologists are really talking about is that how with the illumination of the human spirit is that when you look at someone's behavior, right? When you look at that behavior, you're actually looking at the manifestation of their spirit. So that behavior means that the the, the core of your being is this spiritual being based on this African centered psych piece. And if that's the core of your being, when I see your behavior, I'm just seeing a manifestation of your spirit. Almost like, like, I don't know, like sometimes when big mom and them be like, uh, be like, yeah, I don't, I don't like that boy. Some, some about his spirit just don't sit right with me. Hey, big mom, yeah, what you talking and, and, about? And then, mm-hmm. and then she, then you know, they act, they they do some crazy. Like I told you, the boy won, right? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny because if you look at a lot of things that get published in peer review articles and things like that, a lot of it is just basically formalizing things that are already well established in in folk in so called folk wisdom, you know, mm-hmm. and they act like they yeah, discovered right. this thing, but you know, to them. The folk, the folk wisdom has no validity until it can be reduced into um, something that can be peer reviewed, tested, and you know empirically studied in in a lab. Ooh. And Yurugu mm. has done a lot. I mean, Yurugu is another example of something that you know I thought I was coming onto something, and then I someone pointed me at something. I was like, okay, this totally blows past any meager thing that I was thinking, but it really helped kind of clarify my thoughts on, on a lot of that. And, and one of the, um, one of the conundrums that I've, uh, come across that goes along with what you're saying is, is this thought experiment of, uh, say there was a race of people who didn't have mm. noses or a sense of smell and, and um, you had to try to describe to them uh, what it was like to smell something, you know, and <laughs> but in the words they can understand. But in their culture, their race, they've never developed any words or concepts to describe right. what smelling is like. So right, the construct doesn't exist. The idea. Con- yes. Yeah. Yeah. But with black people, we're in a world where say we were the ones whose cultures or we came from a a race or a culture with noses, but we were raised in the culture mm. of the people with no noses. So we don't even have mm. the language to describe even what ourselves, because we inherited a language of Ooh, people yeah, who developed right. in a whole different mm. way of looking at the world. So I feel like a lot of times, even black people have 
even though we kind of, we buy into this idea that we're magical or, you know, something (laughs) innate or spiritual because we ourselves never got the chance to develop the language to describe our own culture. Or if we did, we lost it through, um, you know, the Middle Passage and white supremacy. Yeah. Oh, man, that that language thing is important. So, and I think that's the beauty of, uh, one of the beauties of Yeru. Exactly. Is that she gives us like this other language coming out of African mythology, right? And the thing with mythology is that it doesn't matter if it's true or false. It's almost like history, even history as mythology, as psychohistory. It doesn't matter if it's true or false. It's what impression it leaves on our minds, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that this whole notion of this language and her grounding that language in, you know, in in, in that Dogon mythology, that it, it gives us a whole nother worldview of how, of how you approach things. And, and I like how you hit that certain things that just don't exist in particular cultures. So, so to look at it through another culture's language is to still look at it through their cultural perspective with their cultural biases and all of those things. It's almost like that. I love that you say you're reading Fanon. Like, I like that point when Fanon says to assume a language is to assume a culture. Mm-hmm. And so, so like, think, like, so when I speak this, but and even back, back to the code switching part, like you think you're doing something now, nah, you still just assuming the culture, <laughs> you're yep. still assuming that position. So to assume the language is to assume a culture. And then we see what happens when people use different languages or how we even judge people who might not speak a particular language. Yeah. And there's these value statements that, that come along, come along with that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, by all means, uh, feel free to uh, continue where, where you left off. I'm really enjoying we this, by the way. Oh, man, I'm, I'm loving talking to you. Yeah. So we, we had we had the Saku piece. And then there is uh, in 1968, we have the birth of the, the origin of the Association of Black Psychologists. And so with the Association of Black Psychologists, 1968, so there's American Psychological Association. And what happens, you know, they have their conference, APA, everyone goes to the conference. So here they are at the conference in San Francisco in 1968. And these black psychologists are like, man, well, I'm tired of dealing with all this. They they don't, we can't deal with any concepts, any theories. When we want to talk about black stuff, we got to go have the, uh, you know, the black caucus and then come back. So they, they're in, uh, where the way the story goes, there's this book called Even the Rat Was White by Robert Guthrie. And he has this section in that book called Who Was in the Room? So you can imagine like when the old heads get to talking that they're all, you know, I was there. I was in the room and I'm the one that came up with it. <laughs> but so Wade Nobles, who's, uh, he called himself a baby founder. He's like one of the, you know, he's, he's an elder now in black psychology or African-centered psychology. But he said he was a baby founder at that time. So they said they're at the hotel, they're at the bar, and they were like, we got to do something else. We can't just keep talking and trying to deal with these white people on their own terms. And that's when they decide to break off and start the Association of Black Psychologists. So at that point, there's another uh, Im- impactful like part of the evolution, them starting their own organization where they could define themselves on their own terms and look at their own theories. But of course, you still have, you know, you're, you're still going to have people d- have disagreements, right? All right. So there's that piece. Eventually, as they start looking at these different things, you have A.B. side, but there's this, let's say, rift between, is it how much, again, how universal are these theories? Is it white psychology, black psychology and white face? Uh, is it is it totally African? Is it a merger? Is it diasporic? So all of those lead to some of the uh, some, some key pivotal moments. But I do want to hit this definition real quick. Of course. Amos Wilson kind of tied. He, he, Amos Wilson was so he was always just real clear, like on let's be practical. How does this work? For, how, how does this work for, uh, for black people? And he says that at the center of African center psychology is the psychology of power. 
It does not merely describe the traditional nature of African people or the orientations of African people based on traditional African culture. It is the psychology that is prescriptive as well as descriptive. It is the psychology of liberation. So with him, with, with that definition, you can see like this line from, let's say, uh, from Fanon to a Bobby Wright to this Amos Wilson piece where he doesn't throw away. He, he, does, he doesn't throw away this idea of traditional or what we would call traditional culture or African culture. But he says at the end of the day, it doesn't just do that. It can't just describe. It has to be prescriptive as well. And I think that's a key point because that ties it into what Maribel calls the black radical tradition, the black radical intellectual tradition. And he says it does those things. It describes black folks experiences. It also corrects the falsehoods and misinterpretations of black people's experiences. But at the end of the day, it also has to be prescriptive and try to come up with some type of solution so we can liberate ourselves. So in a, in a nutshell, I was just trying to show like some key points in, let's say, the evolution or the thinking of how uh, some of the issues that black psychology has dealt with. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting to look at all these um, names. Some of them I've been working my way through and I've um read or I've seen their videos. Like, for example, I've never had a chance to read Amos Wilson's books, even though they're on my list of things to read. But I have been able to watch a lot of his videos on YouTube. YouTube has like mm-hmm. a, a trove of them. But right. uh, people like Akbar, Hilliard, Kanban, Myers, I hadn't even mm-hmm. heard of until I read read your work. Wade Nobles, okay. I, have, I had heard of. I just never uh, read his work. But yeah, there's a lot of people you discuss here. I just straight up never uh, heard of. And I was like, wow, I got a lot of reading to do. And, and again, I, I love how like you're interested in it and you you check that, okay, I've read these other things and now I'm going to tie this in. Because part of what I, I've, again, try to do in my work is take these thinkers and put them in the mix within African-American studies, within just Black intellectual thought. We, we, we can agree or disagree, but these are thinkers who, who thought seriously, or as Noble said, they thought deeply about these things. And how, how do we tie them into the mix with this Black intellectual tradition as well? So that, that's some of the things that I try to do in the work is situate them in, in that mix. Yeah. And um, is there anything else you want to um, discuss on the topic of 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 the development of black psychology before we uh, dig into some more specific examples. Um, no, nah, that's, I think I'm, no, nah, I think, I think I'm good. We, we had a good little, I'm good, I'm good on that. We can, okay, we cool. can talk a little Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sounds, sounds good. I, I, yeah, um, yeah. I read the psychopathic racial personality years ago. Um, and it was really, really good. He had some other essays in the book, the names of which I don't remember, but, um, that were very good as well. I think one was on, uh, black suicide and contextualizing mm-hmm. it, you know, in the black experience. I had not had a chance to read, um, Menticide. I'm trying to remember if Menticide was one of the essays in that book. If it was, I don't really remember the specifics no, of it. No, but I think it wasn't in that book. Now, you, you're, you're, you're a thorough scholar. You're a thorough scholar. I like that. So, no, he mentions, he, he mentions Menticide in the book, but the actual article, uh, Menticide, that was like a, well, yeah, that was an unpublished piece. Like people passed it, but that was, yeah, that, that's not in the, the Menticide article where he delves into it. That's not, that's not in there. That's, that's correct. Okay. Okay. So yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, so he, he, he hits on it, but the one where he goes more on that, that's, that's a whole nother article. And, and that's the other thing too. Like these are, these scholars working these things. So like through, like when I went to FAMU, this only African centered, uh, 
psychology program, then you, we, we have this mental side piece in front of us and it's been copied and passed down. And you know what I mean? Like from, so yeah, man, the booklets that they made, like when they, they, had, they had to come up with their own books, come up with their own articles because they're, they're almost, they're, they're, they're cracking the egg, like opening up that space to, to deal with these black psychological uh, concepts. Whereas my, my crew comes along and we don't have to do that same type of work. And, and what I mean by that same type of work in that, we, we, didn't, we didn't have to fight the way they had to fight. Like they had to fight to be able to talk about a black psychology, right? They, they, they had to open that space. Well, now it's not as strange to talk about there might be a particular way that black people think about things or particular concepts that go along with black psych. They had to fight for that. Like you can even ref, they couldn't even reference black scholars. Mm. I think they might, they might let them get away with some Fanon because Fanon is we, I guess with anything, just like we talked about with Du Bois, but like you ever look at one of those Fanon critical readers, like the Fanon critical readers and all those things. <laughs> and I'm laughing because all these different interpretations of Fanon, like the, there's a literary interpretation of Fanon, like with uh, with Henry Louis Gates. Then mm. there's this existential interpretation of Fanon with, with Louis Gordy. Then there are these other people who are doing like uh, like critical white studies with Fanon. And so post-colonial Fanon. And so I guess Fanon was one where everybody could just like pick and choose what they wanted. And if you threw Fanon in there, they were like, cool. Not like really dealing with what he dealt with, but they would let you do that, what the old heads would tell me. But now we don't have to work that same way. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I chose, I don't know, my route has been interesting, like why I chose African-American studies. And then I was able to stay somewhat with Black and African-centered psychology. And I just, I don't know, I just got to a point where I was like, that's what I want to study. That's what I want to research. If that means I'm marginalized or I'm never going to be some mainstream public intellectual, then that's fine. So I guess I'm saying that to say that, like, you've seen those things where they were talking the other day about, uh, like, citing Black scholars. And it's so important to cite Black. That's never been an issue for me. And I'm not saying this to toot my horn, but in the spaces where I chose to go to school and the work I chose to do, we always cite Black. Like, you, you have to justify why you cite, why did you cite the white scholar? How does that tie into what you're trying to do? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so we we had that, that we, I came out of that type of tradition. So it's just interesting to see how... Yeah, how, how these things work now? What they talking about? When I'm like, yeah, that's that was never an issue. Yeah, and uh, I got a sense of menticide from reading your characterization of it, and it was uh, mm-hmm. it was it was pretty it was a pretty uh, I don't know how to put it. it 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 was one of those theories that you kind of have to stop and like take a breath and really you know take a look back and be like, okay, this really is like a paradigm shift, you know, to yeah, that, he's in, yeah. that he's introducing here. Kind of similar to how you said, I don't remember if it was before we got on air or after, I think it was, I think you said it on air about how uh, Bobby Wright could take a simple paradigm shift of like, you know, instead of saying, um, why are uh, black people killing black people? It's like, why mm-hmm. haven't they been trained to kill white people? And that simple right, little right paradigm shift it's like uh, i feel like mental side is like a bigger version Ooh, of that yeah you're right and, and and so that's a good point so so take so here so here's we talk about i talk about that a little bit in the in the paper so here's bobby wright he's from the backwoods of alabama right so he's from anderson his grandfather starts like this it's all black town hoxton city he's one of the founders of that so first of all that's important for him and uh, one of his students kobe cambon who's also from alabama and that they're in these segregated environments where all they see that all they see is black people, right? And they see, to, I hate to use one of the terms they use now, it's kind of been misrepresented, but they, they, they see black excellence, for lack of a better term. They, they see black self-determination. So, so they've they seen all these things, right? 
But also what happens is that he goes on and he goes to get his PhD from the University of Chicago. And one of the things, again, how he takes certain statements and makes it makes it so simple. But there's a lot of that go a lot of things that come with that. So when he says that more people are more impressed with the fact that I got my PhD from the University of Chicago than that I was raised in this all black city, all black section, Hobson City in Alabama. Mm. And for him, he was like, it's this all this this those black folks who 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 are uh, who 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 are uh, who taught him, who nurtured him, who developed him. Like that's way more important. He had all those things before he went to Chicago, but yet menticide, right? Menticide makes you want to look at the Chicago because again, we put that as they've defined the power to define says that that's a pinnacle this elite education. And he said, No, my education, my real education happened in Hobson City, Alabama. Yeah, and that's something that uh, what you said was great about how uh, black excellence, you kind of almost chafe at saying it because of what right, it's been right. turned to as a term. It's uh, it's turned into some kind of awful pageantry. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I'll put my own my own uh, words and you know make clear that this is not something you're saying. I don't want to get you in trouble for this, but I think it's honestly <laughs> a pageantry for a lot of mediocrity, to be honest. And, mm-hmm. and that... Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of sucks because it's a great term. The term itself is great. The actual usage of it, though, is um, kind of horrible. But it's also used to promote the type of mindset you're talking about, as in mm-hmm. this person's mm-hmm. remarkable because they went to mm-hmm. uh, Harvard or this person's remarkable because they were the first such and such, you know, out of Yale rather than their work is really good and and that their work is grounded in something uh that's very authentically uh black but you make it oh you make it go no no i i I agree with you because what i also hear you saying is it's tied back into that universalism right yeah and the norm of excellence is white people and what white people do white people's institutions and so then it's we say excellence, but it might be another E word. It, it might be trying to say exceptionalism. Yeah. Or another E word, elitism, too. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Right, right, right. Because, like, <laughs> this way again uh, is different from the rest of the masses, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And then the authenticity yeah. uh, gets reduced to if you can code switch, which is, you know, very mm-hmm. superficial. Like, Code switching is different than growing up in a tradition like Bobby Wright uh, um, grew up in, where it was really, really. I mean, to to, to use another example, uh, the the writer of the play, uh, slave play that was taking over all of Broadway, he was kind of discussing his time at Yale and and um, you know what made his uh, you know play play good, you know, and what Yale gave him, and he was saying, yeah, uh, being at Yale, even though it was uh, all white you know, environment and stuff that didn't stop the play from, you know, being, um, you know, good and speaking to racism because they were willing to listen and to, he's talking that, that ally talk, which I hate, you know, they were, they were willing to like, yeah. to like listen and, um, you know, give me space, you know, to be, um, you know, who, who I needed to be and do all that stuff. And it's like, okay, but them getting out of your way is not, a white person getting out of your way, they're getting out of your way because in they're, you're doing what uh, they were socializing you to um, do and, you know, to mm-hmm. spread the messages that they want you to spread. But what you're not talking about is who were the black people that were willing to get in your way? Like, your way. Y- yeah, who, mm-hmm. who are the ones that are willing to go in there and say, hey, brother, what you're doing here is uh, it's not the business or... You know, um, these people are just using you and making you a mascot, you know. Right, and, right. Yeah, and, and that's what I think 
a lot of the mm-hmm. current uh, black excellence is about. It's not about what Bobby Wright had, which is yeah. a bunch of black people who are like mentoring and steering you and infusing you with values, but more about um, we're going to drop you off with the white people and trust them to um, socialize you correctly because uh, white black excellence should just be white excellence and blackface. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and then again, clo- it's also measured by your your closeness and proximity to whiteness, mm-hmm. right? Yep. The closeness and proximity, your ability to uh, what act as if you are that, you know, to internalize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 you're right. That's why and. And that's the interesting thing, too, with these some of these psychologists. So Bobby Wright. And so when we look at Bobby coming out of that environment and never losing sight of like he would never make it now as like one of these public intellectuals who are out there. That's just not that's not who he was. That that's not who he, he would ever be. Right. Yeah. So I, I like the one when he says uh, and I guess he I don't know. Have you seen his speeches on, on YouTube? Oh, uh, yeah, I have. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you see how he talks, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so here he is. Yep. And like, you know, he, I think it was part of him using, like I say in our article, like using that, that type of Southern wisdom and like the beauty of like Southern black culture and, and, um, and how, how we speak him using that too. Like that's how he talked, but also using that to his advantage, which is different from trying to cold switch. Right. So, so like, think about it, like he, he's stuttering a little bit, but I think he's adding that for effect. So he's, he's doing the stutter piece. So he's going to say something like the, the only contradiction among black people is that there is no contradiction. Yes. Right. And yes. so his voice is going to go up. He's going, So the only contradiction among black people is that there are no contradictions. And I just I love how he hits that because it sounds like, you know, like what well, it sounds like, you know, one of your uncles just talk. But at the same time, he said, no, the contradiction is that we we don't have a critical consciousness. So if critical consciousness is being aware of the contradictions in society and then trying to see what you can do to resolve those contradictions, that, that prescriptive part, then the contradiction is that we don't recognize those things that are going on. And so he starts off the bat with that. And I just, I just love how he uses that type of Southern wit, but it's still tied into concepts that change how we think and change our consciousness. Yeah, it reminds me in a way, even though like, they don't have a similar cadence, but the way that the folksy way of talking um, mm-hmm. makes things clear is on Neely Fuller. Like, like, like Neely Fuller has a very uh, folksy way of speaking that very much belies how uh, brilliant uh, and clear his analysis right. is. But it's it's not brilliant in spite of that, but actually because of it, it's it actually it. Um, yeah. enhances mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I use uh, in class sometimes. I use one of my uncles, Uncle Peanut. And when I'm trying to get them to understand, like, um, we, we, we want to be open minded. We want the methodology you want to use is to understand the theory before we pick it apart, before we say we disagree with it. Let's understand these different concepts that we're trying to deal with. And Uncle Peanut from Ranch, Georgia, he was real clear. He would say, you might not lack what I have to say, but understand me. And that's Uncle Peanut's way of saying that before you start, you know, saying you disagree or you don't before understand the main points that we're trying to make here. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of use that in class sometimes when I want them to, to to get, let's understand the theory, then we'll critique it or then apply it. And you don't have to agree with it to understand it. So yeah, I, 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 that's one thing I always try to look at, how how, uh, how how you don't have to use all these big, fancy, you know, polluting words, right? What I wanted to hit on, make sure we get about Bobby before we roll is uh so some examples of the contradictions that he talked about. The only contradiction among black people is that there are no contradictions. So he would bring up uh Christianity. And again, he's trying to get us when he talks about that, he's saying, let's think critically about some of these terms and some of these ideas and these principles 
that have been that that we've been that we've internalized in our tradition. So he would say everybody wants to talk about Christianity, but then he was like, how come? Yeah, no, that's no, that's what he said. Everything's bad about slavery. <laughs> like no one, I, the, the food was bad. How folks dressed, talk, but no one wants to talk about the re- everything's bad about slavery except for the religion that they gave us doing slavery. Mm. And I was like, Bobby, right? Once again, he's saying that okay, well, if all that other thing, all those other things you associate with slavery is bad. And aren't positive things. And what about the religion that was least used during, utilized during that time period? So again, like looking at that, what, those type of contradictions, looking at terms like, uh, like democracy, like what, what, like why buy into this whole democracy, please? Also, uh, what's the one? I think that's one that Francis Cress Wilson and Neely Fuller used, at least Francis Cress Wilson as well. But like terms like majority and minority, like he's like, no, we need to think, con- think, think about that. The, the majority of the people in the world are people of color. But yet you still run around here talking about the minority, right? Yep, yep. So he hits on those. And then so yeah, just how he how he used that 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 type of way to look at some of these concepts and change how we thought about it. Um one thing that Wright talks about a lot is um well what you mentioned about uh Wright discussing is uh in general we talk about this this debate about uh socialism and how mm-hmm. some yeah. how some yeah. thinkers, you know, think of some thinkers think like Clark that you can just um, take socialism, but then apply it to apply it to uh, black issues and just kind of retrofit it. Like, you know, take what works, what helps black people mm-hmm. and, um, you know, throw out the rest that don't. And I probably fall a little bit more into that camp myself. But then mm-hmm. what is what is rights uh, take on it? Because because rights take on it is uh pretty interesting and is a little bit different yeah so so you're talking about uh dr john henry clark um i believe so there was, there was a clark you mentioned in this article but i missed the first yeah, yeah, name yeah. so okay, I, uh-huh. I assumed it was john henry clark that was being discussed yeah 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 that's it uh-huh yeah okay. yeah yes 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 yeah so so doc so dr clark is like he could be you know he, he could be a socialist a pan-africanist and a nationalist all at the same time right? yeah that's the quote and this idea yeah yeah Okay, and then he also has this other one. He talks about how uh, in uh, Notes for World for African World Revolution, how the Chinese could take that, and you have to like China, they had to Chineseize it, and we would have to Africanize Africanize these things. And so I'm 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 with you. I'm with, I'm with Dr. Clark. I I get that. I think we can. Like e- even if you have to, because what happens? I'm, I'm gonna get there. Of course. So what happens is this. So, so what happens is that sometimes we give one of my my uh, my Jagna Baba Kobe Cambon. He said that we give like when he talked about like empiricism versus like Africans being spiritual. And he said sometimes we give the European too much credit. Mm-hmm. And by that he was trying to say there's no way that these Africans exist on the planet Earth for this whole long time, right? And they weren't involved. Like you don't build pyramids without being empirical. You, that you, you have to be able to measure, observe that you do that to survive and grow as human beings. And he's saying that we, we would give the Europeans too much credit in saying that, that that's solely theirs. All right. I say that to say that that the same thing with the with the, uh, with the socialism, all this, that if we look at those principles, whether we're talking about Ujima, with Nairi, that those principles already existed in Africa, right? So it's not as if Marx came and he bought these things, angles. No, we're looking at, he might have applied it to a particular time in history, a particular like postmodern or modern time, but those principles themselves already existed. So I think that you, I'm with you. I think you can blend those, blend those together. And especially when we talk about uh, being prescriptive, because it's, it's, it gives you a particular type of critique of, of class, of power dynamics. 
But with Bobby Wright, we have I mean, Bobby, Bobby Wright, I mean, race, race man, race first, right? So his whole his his I think he was he was leery of these type of 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 any other type type of some of these other ideologies because he thought it moved you away from looking at race. It would it would it would make he would say that race would be the defining variable that impacts your quality of life, not the class. And, you know, and again, we, we can disagree with these folks. But I think with Bobby Wright, that was his issue, that it was race first. And if it if it moved you away from putting race at the center then that's going to be a problematic. Whereas Dr. Clark is saying that now race can still be there. You know, all this talk we say now about being intersectional or whatever, but race can still be there. But all these other variables help us critique and understand as well. Yeah. And in your piece, there's this passage I found that's pretty interesting where it says, um, whereas right is in agreement with Arma, who asserts that regardless of the cultural perspective and or yeah. ideological slant given to Marxism socialism in the form yeah. of African socialism and or repackaged as Ujamaa, the two mm-hmm. approaches cannot be merged. According to Wright's perspective, the two social theories are essentially culturally incompatible since the success of socialism among people of African descent depends on an alliance and or coalition mm-hmm. with white people, yeah. a racial group that ultimately prioritizes their best interests and not the best interests of Africans. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a bleak um, outlook. But yeah. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to dismiss it out of hand because I think there's a lot of evidence that kind of shows he might be right. Well, but let's look, let's, so let's do that. Let's look at, I think, I think he's coming out of the suspect. Like I remember being an undergrad mm-hmm. and I'm going to try to give a few examples, but so I, yeah, I remember being an undergrad and like these, it's something like folks would come to campus, right? <laughs> these like socialists and they weren't like black socialists, but they'd be like mainly white socialists and may, may have like a few black people with them, right? And they bought with them like, you know, a communist manifesto. They might have the red book. And to the extent that they're talking to us, they're telling us that we have to move away from race. Like you, race is keeping you away from um, from forming an alliance. Like you said, like like it's like they said, and they're forming an alliance with uh, with white people, who, which could help your cause. Right. So so while you're so focused on race, there are some other things that you could be dealing with. So when people come at it like that, I think Bobby Wright was looking at it within that context of that. If this means that I have to have allies and those allies have to be white allies who are saying that decenter race and deal more with class, then that's going to be that's going to be a problem. Right. And I think uh, what was the other one I was going to hit you with, Trevor? He said um, Bobby Wright, the class piece. Oh, it just left my mind. Mm. Oh, was it was it related to uh, Wright and and his and his views on um, socialism and his viability for black people? Yeah. So but we hit. So the viability would be centered. So he so he's going again the, with the race first piece. But there was something in there where. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think I think that's it. Too. Yeah, that's what I want to say. I'm sorry. No problem. So I think we could if we take I don't know if Bobby Wright. This would be interesting, though. That's so. I'm going to hit on the Bobby Wright point. But what hasn't been done, a lot of work hasn't been done on, and like I haven't looked at it in depth, and I've heard people talk about it, but if Bobby Wright is in Chicago, so the Fred Hampton, the movie Judas and the Black, that's out now. So if Bobby Wright is in Chicago, Fred Hampton is in Chicago. You have the Fred Hampton Black Pan- and the Black Panther Party. You have Bobby Wright working with these grassroots organizations. He's working with some of these youth gangs. Then they had to come come across each other's path. And I'm wondering what that looked like where he sees this black man who's in, who's who, who we know, like we can't say black, 
Fred, Fred Hampton, he's radical, but he sees this black man who's talking about these alliances across class with other groups, with these these poor white people coming from the Appalachian Mountain with these Chicanos. And I wonder what how that would have changed that them having more of a conversation together, how that would have changed his, his notion of just dismissing it outright. That's a great question, yeah. Yeah. And, and so maybe it's, it's a point of like him not dis- dismissing it outright because he felt that it would take, if it means you having to have these allies in the sense that we see now and it moving you away from looking at black people and that it's predicated on that you're, you're almost like you're not high science, you're not progressive. If you're not having these organizations that are teamed with white people, then I'm going to have to leave that alone. So I wonder what, what that Fred Hampton conversation would have looked like with him. And I'm sure they had it, but I'm, I'm, I wonder what, what that sounded like. As well as I'm thinking like things like all African people's Revolutionary Party, because Bobby Wright, what, 1934 to 74? So, so, no, no, 80. Yeah, 1980. So, if he saw things like All African People's Revolutionary Party, the uh, New, New Republic of uh, Africa, like these these organizations where they're African, identify as African, say they're captive Africans, and they're, they're not shying away from African culture and Black people, but they are using like this, like, play, like some socialist sensibilities, at least, <laughs> right? Yeah. And they don't, and they don't, they wouldn't qualify within the mix of what Bobby would say is that this taking them away from uh, dealing with issues of race. Yeah, def- definitely. I mean, I mean, like, I'm curious about those questions too. What he's saying, I mean, as someone who uh, was looking at the uh, nomination of Bernie Sanders, who's not even the most socialist guy mm-hmm. in the world, he's somebody who's, mm-hmm. but compared to your run-of-the-mill mainstream Democrat, he's pretty, um, he's pretty socialist. He's definitely far more socialist right, right. than most mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, liberal politicians even then there were a lot of things where i was looking at how race was handled if not always by bernie sanders and by many of his followers and yeah there was a degree to which even though i am more in the clark school that you know take what works and throw out what doesn't and you know there's some other schools that think you know there are alliances that can be pulled off and you just have to keep them in perspective there were some moments in there where i was like gee can we ever can we actually really do any type of alliances like every time we mm-hmm. have a critical discussion on something like say like reparations and then you see how um oh, yeah. where things kind of hit a wall then it's like okay there is always yeah. going to be a limit here you know <laughs> yeah i yeah. think you're right Trevor. yeah i can and i can see bobby Wright being like yeah brother if you want to engage in that go ahead yeah exactly <laughs> you, you do that. exactly yeah, how you'd not, say it that's, too. that's, not, that's yeah. not going to be you'll be back <laughs> I'll, I'll be right here on Friday doing this work. So, well, well, let me let me ask you this: uh, one school of thought that's very uh, popular today that has that kind of bleak view of alliances is oh, is no, uh, I know you about to go? Yeah, uh, uh, Afro pessimism. Afro pessimism. Right? Yeah, yes. yeah. But one problem I kind of have with Afro pessimism, uh, even though I do like uh, the way that it, it, it reminds you of um, what John Henry Clark says, like you have no friends, and it reminds me a lot of uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. what. You right, right. talked about with Bobby Wright. But one thing that I kind of don't like about Afro-pessimism, I'm not sure how much of it is in the original work of it or how much of it is how mm-hmm. where its followers take it. But a lot right, of it kind of right. seems to take this idea of, well, you know, what can what can you do? It's just uh, yeah. it, uh, the Africans are always going to be the slave in the the slave class or the omega race in the ordering of the world. Like, like it's something that, you know, can't be uh-huh. undone or put back yeah. in the box. And I was wondering, uh, to what extent would you say that Wright was 
um, pessimistic or bleak? Or was he still able to form like prescriptions? Because uh, we interviewed Frank Wilderson. And one thing I think he said, really? okay. he said after mm-hmm. we stopped uh, taping, I said, oh, mm-hmm. you know, I forgot to ask, you know, what you think are like prescriptions that, you know, can be can be done or taken from me. I forgot to ask this on the air. And he's like, well, you know, we could talk about that another time, but I'm not really sure that there are any, you know, like this is just the yeah. state of things. And that, I mean, that was pretty bleak. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so I'm, first of all, I think I know for sure Bobby Wright and that's cool. There, you have to believe you can win, right? Yeah, <laughs> you have to believe that we can win, right? So how are you going to go about that? But yeah, you you can, it can't just be that you can't win. There's nothing that you can that, that we can do. And I think that Bobby Wright is is a little different from that in that he has that critique, but then he talks about developing a social theory and not a social theory that says that there's nothing we can do that is bleak, but a social theory that's going to advance the interests of black people. And then after developing that social theory, he says that you have to develop institutions which can sustain that social theory. So even even those are still words and he's still right. I, that's not pessimistic in that. He's saying a social theory that, that works in your best, black folks' best interest and saying that you that there's no way we can win. I don't think that's it. <laughs> and then developing institutions which can sustain your social your social theory. So I yeah, I, I yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I think that uh yeah, you I don't know, like even yeah, you have to believe that you can. <laughs> right. Yeah, because I don't get that feeling from what I've read of Bobby Wright or seen him speak that he is uh into throwing in the towel or accepting this as the way nah. the way it is. Because matter of fact he's trying to he's trying to prepare he's trying to prepare us for getting ready to fight, right? With that critical consciousness. So so think about that. I think a quote is in there, but he talks about in a bullfight, there comes a time when after being brutalized while making innumerable charges at the movement of a cave, the bull finally turns and faces his adversary with the only movement being his heaving bloody sides. For the first time, he really sees the matador and his final confrontation is known as the moment of truth. The experience of black people all over the world presents an anomalous situation. So he's saying that once you once you recognize menticide exists, once you try to develop this critical consciousness, this social theory and try to develop some of these some of these uh, these uh, institutions, then you then you see through. You pulled the veil. Got back to that Du Bois speech. You pulled the veil off of Christianity. You pulled the veil off of democracy. You pulled the veil off of all these things, and now you see them for who they really are. Because now, again, I flipped the script. I'm not just checking the victims. I'm checking those folks who have been who have been doing this to folks. So yeah, that that's a different. That's like trying to get you in a fighting stance. Like see see what's really. It's like you're out there just like swinging. <laughs> and Bobby's like, nah, bro. I, I I know you want to fight, but let's take it. Let's see what we're looking at here. And then you'll fight. Yeah. So I think that's one way that that uh, he differs. And then the other one too is I don't know to go back to Uncle Peanut in there, man. I sometimes man like my Uncle Peanut said he went to the doctor and the doctor said he had like some fancy thing was wrong with his foot, a metamorphosis or something. And Uncle Peanut said, I want him to talk about my damn foot. <laughs> right? What is wrong with my foot? Like, <laughs> give me something to make my foot feel better. What is wrong with my foot? And then give me something for it. And it just seems like that some of that, the wording, I mean, we all do our academic thing, but some of the wording and all that's like, what the, What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's something that can drive me crazy sometimes where I'll read a work and I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. But I'm like, who can I recommend this to? I can't just recommend it to anybody. Yeah. Because this thing is right, right. Yeah, and it's one of the things that we want to kind of do with this show was try to make sure we always speak 
everything as plain as um, mm-hmm. as possible, even though it doesn't always work. And, and I, but that's why I liked y'all, like the a little bit that I did listen to. I was like, nah, they seem like some cool brothers, and you know, we just talk down to earth about, you know, we we do our thing, but yeah, just some regular down to earth, and so folks can try to get it. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I remember, I've I've taken this and held it since the first time I uh, read Psychopathic Racial uh, Personality. It's uh, where I believe the words he used is uh, white people get educated, uh, black people get trained. And that uh-huh. blew my mind when I when I read it. And you actually pick up on it, this article, the right way, uh, where you said, uh, right makes a clear cut distinction between education for liberation and education for training. Right mm-hmm. asserts, quote, the writer dis- defines training as teaching a group what to think rather than how to think by making right. them depend rather than assisting in developing skills which could be used for independent activity and i think that's something that's very true we have a lot of uh highly educated black people who are kind of showcase blacks uh or, or mascots who really <laughs> mm-hmm. to, to take a term from Neely fuller he calls them showcase blacks uh that are very very well very very thorough in what they're told to think but uh are not able to think their way out of that and you know develop something independent and you know kind of examine what they were taught in a in a metal level They're, they know what to think but they don't know um how to think and i thought right was great on that yeah now that's oh I, I love it like like you train like the same way like you can train like animals like train dog, you you can train train them to do this but they can't they don't know like how to think or to step outside like what you taught them right and so even you know we tie that down to like scholars like there so there's um yeah so within black psychology, trying to use this as black psychology as an example of this, what versus how. So the first black person to get a PhD in psychology is Francis C. Sumner. So Francis C. Sumner, I'm sure he had to go through hell <laughs> to be a black man <laughs> and get that PhD, right? Early 1920s, 30s, 20s or 30s. He, he, I'm sure he went through hell. But he's the father of black psychologists in that he's the first black person to get a PhD. But they wouldn't argue that he's the father of black psychology because the father of black psychology means that he's 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 looking at particular theories and concepts and trying to relate that to black people's experiences. Not just I have a, a, a degree in psychology and what Baba Colby Cambon always talked about. He, you know, we love Francis Sumner, but he said that Francis Sumner would be an example of like he's trying like what to think. Right. Whereas when you start talking, I'm breaking away from APA. When you start talking about we need to uh, we, we need to form our own school, our own schools of thought. Then now that's a how to think. And that's an education for liberation. Yeah, I mean, the most how to think book I've uh, started reading, and we, we mentioned it earlier, is Urugu. Like, the time she mm-hmm. takes just to give lists of definitions and concepts, like, she takes such a meticulous amount of time to give ideas and concepts to oh, uh, to words yes. that aren't Eurocentric. It's uh... yeah, that, that was one of our textbooks at, uh, at Florida A&M. And so, luckily, we had Colby Cambon to kind of, like, go through it with us, like, and each person had to present on on a particular chapter, but it's still so much there. Like every time I go through it, I see something else. And it's always interesting. Like when you like you talk to somebody, you're like, yeah, I just I just uh, I just read Urugu. And almost like, you know, like it's not like you just picked up like some pamphlet. You know what I mean? Like you got to go through this thing. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and take your time and go through it. So, yeah, that, I think you're, you're so right. And, she, and so she shows you like when they talk about this sister scholar warrior, how, you know, how, how, how you go about that process. Now, what's interesting with her is that she comes to some of the conferences at Florida A&M and she says this piece, which is interesting, how 
she says that she she felt as if she didn't even write that book. Like at the time, she 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 was trained by Dr. Clark. She used to go to when she would go to Harlem when she was teaching at Hunter. Dr. Clark taught at Hunter, and he started like getting to her of how to think instead of what to think. Because she same thing. She went to a new school. She went to University of Chicago. Got degrees from these elite schools. And he he said she said that he was part of that process of teaching her how to think. But within that, she says that it's like she felt like she didn't even write it. Like something just came over her. Mm. And I, I don't want to get all esoteric. But that's that, that was that's her wording. She was like like spirit wrote it and just taught like gathered all those things together and used her as like the vehicle for that. Now I say that to say that counter to not counter, but when we had that the, the conversation about using all the big words and not being to relate. So she says that if she had now, she doesn't want to focus on that anymore. So two things. So one, like we're, we're looking at it as her flipping the script and she's critiquing uh, European, this uh, the cultural logic of, of, of Europeans, right? And European West of Western culture. And she says that she wished she wouldn't have spent so much time on that. And so now she doesn't spend time doing that. She says she just focuses on black folks and liberation mm. and work like work, working, working with black institutions, uh, work, working with these children, being involved with these different spiritual systems. And so she has this concept that she's uh, that she has called academiitis. And I'm not exactly sure how you spell it, but she uses it. And she talks about academiitis as part of that process we talked about where you're in it and you want you want tenure, you want promotion, you want the publications, you want to be the public intellectual, the recognition. But at the end of the day, that's not education for liberation. And so I think she wants to make sure at this point, at this stage in her life, she talks about how she doesn't want to just be caught up in that academiitis she wants to make sure she's making some type of uh, contribution and you know you know what is interesting about that as well is um i feel i get kind of what she's saying i feel it with a lot of the activist community when you look at what the modern activism has become and a great contrast is if you look at like i think judas and the black messiah was not a perfect movie by any means in terms of i think it focused a little too much on the on william o'neill and not enough on right and not enough on fred Hampton but at the same time mm-hmm. it's a Hollywood movie it's not an independent movie so in some ways I'm kind of glad it, it didn't focus more on Fred Hampton I think if it did it would have felt the pressures to kind of um due to due to him what they did to um Martin Luther King or or Malcolm mm-hmm. where they kind of make right. them kind of palatable you know what I mean uh, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but even in that movie a Hollywood movie one thing you get you take away from it is that much of what Fred Hampton did was about uh, actual, even though he did try to build coalitions with white people okay. and Hispanics mm-hmm. and stuff like that, the primary thing wasn't about the allies, but a positive uh, black vision, mm-hmm. you know, whereas yes, yes. now I feel like a lot of activism is primarily about getting white patronage, um, winning over white right. allies. I, I, I started calling it the white ally industrial complex. Like it's just Ooh. all uh-huh. structured and yeah. built around them and, um, you know, books that Teach what? all those, all, yeah. all those anti-racism oh, books, yeah. book lists, and yeah. If you want, and, uh, and like you're not ball. I mean, we we had Jay, we had Baldwin. So Baldwin did his thing for that particular time. We learned from James Baldwin, yeah. but he and, and, and it's a different moment. Like he. Baldwin was like, like he said, to, to be black in America, to always be in a constant state of rape. So he's he's like a voice. He's he's not really trying to explain. I mean, there's some of that explaining, but he's like our voice and articulating to, if I had to talk to a white person in a way that they could get it, he's saying it. So it's almost like he's speaking for us 
Yeah. Right. But whereas this one, mm-hmm. whereas this crew, they're trying to be is trying to be in this Baldwin tradition, but I don't think the intent and the the, the place it's coming from is the same. And yeah, so that 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 crew is why. Yeah, and I'll say two things. Uh it's not I'll say two things. It's not coming from the same place. Actually, mm-hmm. let, me, let me say three things. Um, one is what you said. It's not coming from the same place. Two, mm-hmm. they're not doing it as well. Like, all they're basically doing <laughs> is restating yeah. and, you know, redoing what he did, except with the worst, most tortured prose. Like, there's nothing that I've read or seen from them that you can't mm-hmm. just go back to Baldwin and read it there written better. Right. right? And it, yeah, that's so true. But then the third thing I would say, and this is something that I've only learned um, very recently, I learned it from a guest. Unfortunately, I can't. Oh, uh, Ishmael Reed was the one that um, pointed me toward this, and then I, I double checked it. Ooh, y'all be talking to some folk now, yeah, man. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we Ishmael Reed, and what he said was, and this was very true. I looked it up uh, later. He, to the extent that he did do that, uh, like focus on like allies and all that stuff, he really regretted mm-hmm. it. He, mm-hmm. he, you do get that stage. Yeah. yeah, later on, you know, he really mm-hmm. felt it was not worth the effort it was to do it in that you know he spent way too much time uh doing that and that it didn't really pay off and it was um not fruitful yeah oh that and so what's wild with that so we talked about uh like afro pessimism and you can't win and giving up now that's different so i think um if I think about Eddie's Eddie Glaw's piece at the end, he talks about how how Baldwin like never gave up. He still believed in this idea, this democracy and what America could be. And that might be true, but it's framed, it's still kind of framed in this kind of kumbaya type of piece, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where I don't think that's what he was, yeah, like you, you would have to have some conference. Like I'm trying to get, he's trying to get us there, but he realizes that there's going to be some confrontation. And I think that's why he always kept talking about this, uh, this whole, whole notion of the price of the ticket. Like yeah. I, I thought that was just like that one title, but I went through this period where I was reading this diff- these different Baldwin pieces, and he's always talking about the price of something or the price that's paid, right? Yep. And so there's going to be some type of price, some struggle. Sometimes it's with your own life. So yeah, that that's different from a kumbaya. I'm trying to get us to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think to a degree he did um, sometimes entertain the kumbaya thing or this idea mm-hmm. that um, you know he could enter these kind of circles and change things from the inside, but he could, right. He, Right. Like, like I think he did always have some kind of optimism and mm-hmm, the American mm-hmm. project can be uh, somehow redeemed but he increasingly realized that there would be a price to it you know as there'd be a price for that yeah that's it yeah that's yeah, it. yeah to- totally totally but uh, if you get a chance I don't know if you've seen it yet but it's um, mind-bogglingly mind-bogglingly bad is the time the time specially curated the time magazine specially curated issue on the black renaissance with uh, mm-hmm. American Amanda Gorman on the cover. Oh, that's the recent one, That's the recent one. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you can do it without putting money in their pocket, you know... uh, Mm, It's hard to get through. Oh, man. But it's it's really... I think everyone should look at it to see, like, what a full-court press, like, is being done Mm -hmm. to kind of... um, reframe the idea of uh what you said before about black excellence it reads like mm-hmm. one of those advertorials those things that they used to have in magazines that looks like an article <laughs> but it's actually an ad it's uh-huh yeah 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 th- that's all i'm gonna say get a chance to uh google like you know time magazine black renaissance and it's and it's really really just yeah. um what you described about what they think baldwin was trying to do like right, like you know right. uh, to them i think the main beauty of baldwin 
Baldwin is how how many white people like them more than mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the degree to which he stayed rooted in in <laughs> in the black community. Yeah, and I think what what we like most about Baldwin is like, Dang, did he just cuss him out? Yeah, I think he just cussed him out. Dang. And he said it so bad. I loved him, right? Oh, totally, totally. Uh-huh. Like I get upset when people talk about uh, Baldwin versus um. William F. Like, like sometimes I see like um white people or different. Uh, sometimes black liberals do this, where they act like mm-hmm. it was some kind of great meeting of the minds. And the beauty of it is that Baldwin held his own against you know this heavyweight of right wing intellectualism. I'm like, no, that's yeah, that's insulting no. to even that, say oh, that's uh, what was good. He destroyed him and exposed him as yes. totally intellectually inept. And like, yeah, that's 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 because they're, they're putting themselves again at the center. And we're like, no, this is our brilliant giant intellectual. No, I don't. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. No. Yeah. If anything, that's like a backhanded compliment yeah. to say that. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we we won't get too much in the ball, but yeah, that like even with with the Malcolm piece, like he's man. Him and him and Malcolm, he's. <laughs> There's a part about Wright's critiques of ca- canonical figures in the discipline of psychology, uh, such as Watson yeah, yeah, yeah. and Skinner, and I thought this was a uh-huh. a great package passage, and I wanted to talk about. Um, if you don't mind talking okay, about no, that. Okay, no, that's a good part. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah, let's rock that. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay, yeah. So, so go ahead. You want to frame something? Oh, or? oh no, no. By all means, uh, you can frame it any way you want. Okay, no. So, I think that's a, a good example of how... So, so e- even, even the idea of the psychopathic racial personality and him looking at the World Health Organizations and their characteristics of what a psychopath is, right? Then he's taking that. So if a psychopath is an above average intelligence, an appearance of honesty and humanness, constantly in conflict with other people, disregard for the rights of other people. Again, I know we, I keep beating this, but he's saying, no, that's not universal. Everything you're talking about, let's play this game of substitution. And you are talking about yourself. Right. So 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 I think that that's part of what he looked like. Look at this this book and how this book that you use to define. Remember. Empowers the ability to define reality and have others accept that definition as if it were their own. You're defining what, for lack of a better term, you're defining what sane and insane is. You're defining what normal, abnormal, what's crazy, what's not crazy, right? So I think that that opens the door for him of looking at, let's say, certain, yeah, white texts. And so within that, why he's a little different from some of the radical school in, in the sense of how they deal with uh with white psychology, when he looks at Skinner and he says he's looking at him, he's it's like I'm looking at these books and he's saying that we're not taught it the same way. They're teaching us what to think. Oh, look at this founder of behaviorism. Look at look at these operant conditioning pieces. But the how the thing says that how is that used against me? How how can that be used against black people? So yeah, I'll do the quote. He says, a dozen Skinner talks about a dozen healthy infants, well informed. Well, Watson, he says as a dozen healthy infants, well-informed in my own specified world to bring them up in. And I'll train him to become doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant, chief, and yes, beggar man and thief, regardless of his talents in the race of his ancestors. And I say this struck a chord with right about the influence and intentions of white psychology. So he said, if, he, if he's saying that just in general and about behaviorism and what, what, uh, what the, I guess the role and function of his psychology is, what does that mean for black folks who are being conditioned? What does that mean for black folks with menticide? What, what does that mean where I can say that I can make them into anything I want them to be? What does that mean for black folks in so-called uh, the, these urban environments who are, who, who are trapped in as well as being left out of different opportunities? So, yeah, th- for him to take that and say that, no, he, they're talking about how they oppress folks. This, this statement is about the psychology of oppression. 
This is this is <laughs> that's him doing his phenomenon thing again, right? How does this time? This is about psychology of oppression, colonization. So yeah, that I that, and so again, he's not saying he's not taking them and saying that this is universal. He's saying no, you're talking about your worldview and how you impact how you can impact people's lives. And then the Skinner piece, where Skinner's notion that it is possible to delude people into thinking that they have freedom and dignity resonated with right. So this this idea that you can delude people into thinking that they have freedom and dignity. And so Bobby Wright is like, that's how you keep people from having critical consciousness. That's what that's what that's what the uh, that's what the Matador and the Bull in the Bull talks about. That that's mm-hmm. what Menaside talks about. This idea of you think that you're free because you haven't thought critically about that. And so he he asked that 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 the basic question he always asks is how he asks is how does this work in the best interest of black people yeah and, and is, so those are the mm-hmm. type of things yeah oh i'm sorry i thought you were done no i am now yeah yeah oh, okay i think another great example we could just close it out on that is uh we just had an election and the extent to which so many mm-hmm. of these uh black respectability politics uh centrist and liberals got so invested you know in in either way whether they were um the handful of conservatives or the vast majority of black democrats you know talking about how you know joe biden we have to get trump out of office and like that illusion of choice i think is exactly mm-hmm. what um is exactly oh, what Wright was talking about when he was interpreting skinner this idea that you get tricked into mm-hmm. having this freedom but it's like you have the freedom to have a a fried bologna sandwich or a or a plain <laughs> bologna sandwich that's basically uh the freedom that that you're given you know uh the, yeah, the choices yeah. are so filtered for you already before it even gets to you to choose you know it's like uh, having a steak is not on or having a salad is not even on the menu no that's not that's not in the mix right yeah, right yeah it's the, the illusion of choice and i thought that was a great example yeah, but, I, but I, had the, I had the freedom to choose i i, I voted right <laughs> i did all that i'm gonna put nah, the sticker that's, on that's put it on instagram you know oh, yeah right right yeah take your picture facebook all the yeah yeah so then i can then i, I then i can shame all you folks who <laughs> did it right yeah exactly god forbid you're someone which is a good point because mm-hmm, yeah. then if we think about it too that means that if you're looking at those as the options and that's your freedom, then what about all the other people who are doing that type of grassroots activism where, no, nah, baby, I'm not I'm not stuck between your choice. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? I, I do this work all they do this work all day. <laughs> you know, what I'm saying vote. It's not just every two years, every four years. They're on the ground actually doing the work. And that's through that work. That's how they're gaining their freedom and their dignity, not this false you know, option that doesn't really work in the best interest of black people. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I want to give you a chance to end it with anything you wanted to say, whether it's just a summation of anything or anything that you wanted to bring up but didn't get a chance to. Or, you know, if, if you don't even want to bring up anything, that's that's valid as well. You know, but just give you a chance to if all you want to do is just tell people where to find you or whatever, that's fine as well. But I'll give you the floor to close out the episode. Okay. Yeah. So again, I just want to thank you for for having me, and I would love to come back because we opened the door with some of these Bobby pieces, and I love how uh, how through our conversation, and that and that's something I'm gonna try to work on too, is ma- making these connections to not just like the theory itself, but how you tie it into contemporary examples of how this menacide and these things still still play itself out. So I guess one, I want to thank you for how I looked at you helped me work through some of the theories, but also we talked about like contemporary examples of how it's still relevant right so because like so what good is the theory if it's not being applied to our everyday lives right so i I just want to thank you for that 
oh. for, for having that. Oh, and thank I think, you for your work. Uh, oh, I appreciate that. Again, and, and I, I appreciate you for, uh, for for reading the work because again, that's like a conscious a conscious decision that I made that this is the this is the this is my lane. This is this is the type of things I do. And of course, now I'm trying to move more into looking at some more uh, like community psychology, hands on community based participatory research things. But up until now, like that's been the work that I do. So it's, it's good to have that recognized. But at the same time, it's like I knew that there'd be this thing where this is to be the work I do and everyone's not going to not going not to be down with that. I think the last thing is that, yeah, that um, so what Google Scholar, um, even or academic EDU and folks are always good to just email me at, uh, you know, djamison at uab.edu. And yeah, I can send articles we can discuss. Yeah. So that's yeah, that that's where I am. Yeah, and uh, when I was reading the work, I realized I was going to have to have you on more than once because there was so much stuff talked about. I'm like, there's there's no way I can just uh, boil all this down to a single to a single episode. So I'm glad that you're welcome to um, coming back. I mean, oh, we, yes, yeah, indeed. I'm even open to having you back in a couple of weeks if your schedule allows for it. Okay, yeah, let me know. Yes, indeed. Okay, mm-hmm. great. I'll definitely reach. I'll definitely reach out to you. Uh, thanks for spending your time with us, everybody out there. Check out ChampagneSharks.com. It's all the links uh, related to the show, and check out uh, Dr. Jameson at the places that uh, he mentioned. And yeah, everyone, take care, Dr. Jameson. You have a good one as well. All right, you too, brother. Peace.